Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Look to the bee, Christian, and be wise. See how he buzzes his way to one flower, and what is he looking for? He's looking for nectar, and he finds it. But while he's extracting the nectar, pollen sticks to his leg. It's an accident. But off he goes in search of another flower of the same family. He finds it. He lands upon the flower. What is he looking for? Nectar. But look, the pollen on his leg rubs off onto the flower pollinates that flower, and now we can have another generation of this kind of flower. It could not have happened otherwise. For the bee, it was an entire accident. He was only interested in the nectar. But as he pursued the nectar, accidentally, as a side issue, he pollinates a flower. He's looking for one good, and in finding it, he produces another good. So is your love if you are a Christian. You love others who are in this room. That is the nectar that you seek. And you go about day after day pursuing this love for one another. You find a single mother and she is in need. She needs provision and you provide it. You come alongside people who are in dark places and you go like the bee to the flower. You go there to serve. You are drawn to the very act of service. This is what it means to be a Christian and this is what it means to love. You are seeking the good of giving. But watch out, because when you give as a way of life, what sticks to your leg? The pollen of getting, or maybe easier to say, joy. It wasn't what you went looking for. It is a byproduct of serving others. It is a blessedness that you accidentally find upon yourself when you live a life of giving. And it accords exactly with the words of our Savior. He said it would be so. He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. But it feels blessed to receive things. So how am I being blessed by giving? It's a byproduct. You receive joy. You get more in the giving than you get in the getting. Now, prosperity preachers have abused this idea. They have really redefined it by saying, yes, it's more blessed to give to my ministry because then you receive more money for yourself. Well, what you should do, and this is what you should do in all cases, not just now, but let's put them out of our minds and not think about them at all. They're entirely wrong and realize that although they're wrong, the principle remains you give, not to their ministry, but you give to others in need who are around you right now, and you do reap. You sow, you reap. You sow in service, you reap joy. It will be yours. You will find a blessedness, a real flourishing of life. What really everyone is looking for in an ultimate sense, you find it not by reaching out, taking hold of it, ripping it to yourself. That's where wars come from. That's the source of conflicts. But you find it when you let go of it.
And you turn your attention to the person sitting by you who is suffering and you enter into the suffering or have a need and you give of your own substance for their need and then you flourish. It's as accidental as the pollen on the leg of the bee, but you flourish. This is the Christian life. This is what Christian love is. It's us giving painfully, giving till it hurts, giving when you're tired, giving until you don't have the financial security you wish you had, giving until it's inconvenient, giving until conflicts necessarily arise, giving until it's uncomfortable, and then walking away from all the unpleasantness as the most blessed, joyful person possible. Christian love is giving, but Jesus has taught us that to give is the best kind of getting. And I say this because in 1 John, we're continuing to look at Christian love. And he is going to appeal to you again today, not just to say that you love the people in this room, because we can all do that and we must as Christians, but to love indeed, to love in your heart, to love in your hands, to love in your actions, to love in your wallet, to love in real life which is the most blessed way of living. Let's look at this in 1 John chapter 3. Start with me in verse 16. By this, we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let's not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. We began this long section here in this chapter, which is entirely on love, back in verse 11. And we're not going to reach the end of this section on love until the end of this chapter. So it's a very long section all about our love for each other. And we saw last week how not to love each other, not like Cain, who was a murderer. So don't hate each other, love each other. But John is doing now what every good preacher and teacher must do. He's taking this concept of love and he's forcing it into your face. He's now applying it. He won't let you go. He's taking you by the collar and he says, you can't walk away from this service this morning. You can't walk away and think that was a very lovely sermon and do nothing about it. It's not allowed. It has nothing to do with the sermon. It's because it's the text. Do you see the text? He's saying you have to, no matter what you came in like, you have to leave here as a Christian whose life is characterized by love that can be seen, by love that can be touched, felt, heard, by real love. All of us as Christians have to say the right loving platitudes, but they're only platitudes if you don't really mean them. John will not let you go until you mean the platitudes. Until you can say to a Christian in the hallway on a Sunday morning, brother, I love you. Sister, I love you. And mean it from the heart. And prove it in your life. So what we will see in this text then, 
is that we are called not to love in word. See that in the text? But we are called to love in deed. And those will be the headings of this message. So let's begin in the Shadowlands, sort of the negative contrast of things, where he's telling us how not to love each other. And we are not to love each other in word. Look at this here, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You can't do that. Look at verse 18, the warning at the beginning. Little children, let's not love in word, or which is to say the same thing, or talk. This is word love. Talk love. And let's spend a little bit of time in the text considering what this love is so that you don't do it. <laughs> Verse 17 actually gets to the heart of the whole matter. It doesn't matter how much you are saying to people you love them. Some, by personality and temperament, will say it more often and some will say it less. We should all say it sometimes. But that's just words. Verse 17 gets to the root of the matter and it is this. Closes his heart against him. That's the greatest danger any of us are in. Now, to understand that, you have to look at the two conditions that are set upon it, which come right before it. It's not just that you close your heart, but two conditions are met, and then you close your heart. That's what makes it so bad. So, first condition, I can almost pass over. It's right here. If anyone has the world's goods... I can almost pass over this without comment because, look, you do. <laughs> I do. We do in this room. We have the world's goods. Some of us have more of the world's goods and some of us have less of the world's goods, but all of us in this room have the world's goods. God does not judge any person the globe over who cannot give because they just don't have the resources to do it. Say someone in a third world country living in a shanty desires to give, but they just don't have the resources. Will God be angry at that person? No. We know that, for example, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, quote, for if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. But even with inflation... You and I aren't living in a shanty. If last night you ate a meal or could have eaten a meal and you slept under shelter and then you had even just a little bit more material blessing than those two things, you qualify, you meet the condition, you have the world's goods. That's all of us here. There aren't many of us who say, if I gave, I literally wouldn't be able to eat food. <laughs> and God bless you, it's okay if you don't give in that circumstance. But I don't think that's any of us here. So we meet condition one. So let's move on to condition number two of closing of the heart. And sees his brother in need. There are so many needs in this world that it can actually be rather overwhelming, and you are aware of that. You can't possibly see all of them. It's a time-honored tradition of mothers everywhere in America to talk to their children about 
those children in Africa who are starving, who would love to eat the chicken nuggets that are half eaten on their plate. Every charity, every ministry, every Christian conference that you go to, booth by booth by booth, they're meeting needs somewhere, someplace on the globe. And when you face all of those things, it can feel overwhelming. What we say to that is, may there be more booths at conferences. May there be more charities, more ministries, more people helped. But you understand that you must not be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of needs in the world so that you close your heart. That's a real temptation. We have access to so much technology, so much information today, that it's easy to think, even just in Evansville, how many needs there are. And then to be tempted to close your heart. You're overwhelmed, you're paralyzed by all of it, and you stop. To you, John says, look, condition number two. You see your brother in need. Seeing. You can't see everyone. You can't see every need. It's overwhelming to try. You don't have to. The condition is you see, you see a believer. They have a need. Now you know what to do. You meet that need. Don't be overwhelmed by all the needs you can't see, all the needs you merely hear about. There are plenty of needs right here in this room. There's no lack of needs here that you can be meeting. It's like the story of the boy that you have probably heard who walks by the seashore and there are starfish that have been strewn by the tide across the shore. The sun is rising. The starfish by the thousands are going to dehydrate and die. And this little boy walks along the seashore and he takes one and he throws it into the sea. Kerplunk. And he walks a little way, and he takes another one, and he throws it into the sea. Kerplunk. And an older man who's on the beach sees the boy doing this and says to the boy, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Look how many tens of thousands of starfish there are. You can't get to all of them. What difference could this possibly make? And the little boy picks up another one, throws it into the sea, kerplunk, and says, it made a difference for that one. And you too, you can't save every starfish, and that's okay. Don't be paralyzed by that. John says, if you see, you see, your brother, do good to all persons, Paul says, but especially those of the household of the faith. So look around you, here's believers, you see them? You see their need? Then don't worry that you can't meet every need in the world. You only need to worry about one thing. Not worry in a bad sense, Justin. Talking about a good worry here. You only need to worry about one thing, that one need you see in that one brother or sister right there in front of you. That's the condition met here. Now, someone might say, I don't see any needs in brothers or sisters. I promise you that's not because there aren't any. The problem then is in your seeing. Seeing itself, seeing needs, is a sort of Christian discipline. It requires, first, enough, first of all, that you be near enough to believers to find out what their needs are. Usually, a Christian's not going to meet you for the first time in the hallway here and tell you, by the way, these are the needs I have. <laughs> You're going to learn what needs Christians have by your friendship, by your relationship, by the closeness that you have to them, by listening closely, by reading sometimes between the lines and asking good questions. Is this a need that you have? So if you're not seeing any needs to meet, 
You say, this text is irrelevant to me. I'm not closing my heart because I don't see any needs that I need to meet. The first thing you need to do is see the needs. So how do I do that? Are you in a small group? Why don't I just encourage you, just join a small group. Just do it. You could go out here. We even have a ministry desk now that's been put together. Go to that ministry desk and there's a list of small groups. You can join it because it's sometimes difficult on a Sunday morning to get to know people closely. You're talking, but it's sometimes in passing. You've got to get your kids. Go join a small group and get to know people. See them every week. Live your life with them. You say, well, I'm not free on Tuesday night. Oh, great. We have them on Sunday. We have them different times. Why don't you join the ladies' study that's going to start up Thursday mornings, Thursday evenings, again, different times. You will get to know people. You'll see their needs, and then you can meet them. Say, I'm not a woman. I'm a man. Well, join the men's ministry and go Thursday morning a bit earlier, and there's a study. Get to know them. See their needs. I can't make every Thursday morning. We have a once-a-month men's study taking place. I can't make it once a month. Then just Text somebody and meet them at a coffee shop and ask them, what do you need? <laughs> but you're going to have to see the brother in need. And if you only come Sunday morning and then you leave here very quickly and you go home and you come next Sunday, you're not going to see your brother in need. So you might think, I'm obeying this text. I'm not closing my heart. You already closed your heart. You never opened it to begin with. So the second condition here is we do have to see our brothers in need. Now, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we're supposed to still be talking about the negative here. <laughs> Even if I give some positive application, it is a negative here, which is closing the heart. So if you have the world's goods, you do. Get involved enough that you see your brother's needs, your sister's needs. Okay, you see them. Now, here is the great danger. This is the sort of love which you must disavow, which you must never touch, you must never have. You close your heart against that brother or sister in need. Heart disease, it's the leading cause of death in America. And because of that, many of us are aware of the factors of heart disease. We're aware of things like high cholesterol. We're aware of high blood pressure. We don't want our arteries to close. This is a disease a million times worse than heart disease. Don't worry about so as much your arteries closing as your very heart closing. This is the murderous wasting disease that John is calling you to avoid with all the powers you have. Do not close your heart against a brother or a sister who is in need. John says right here in this verse that Proof of God's love being in you is that your heart stays open toward believers in need. That's why it's so important that you guard against trying to close your heart, that is, dampen the compassion that you may feel by the Spirit of God towards someone who is suffering or in need. Because that's God's kind of love right here poured out in your heart expressing itself. Do not quench the Spirit of God. Don't quench the love that He puts within you for other people. Can you as a Christian look upon another saint who is suffering and excuse yourself from stepping in to help? And we all do it at times. 
I'm not talking about, by the way, a person who's squandering the help that they receive. This happens where people are giving and the person by their own fault or sin squander the help and now they have more needs. And you give, now there's more needs because it's being squandered. The need that they have might not be more material help. It might be you coming alongside and teaching them how not to squander it. But I'm not talking about them right now. I'm saying you see a brother or sister who is in a genuine need. It's not a fault of their own. Or if it is, it's a very minor one. And they have a real need. And you see this person. How easy is it for you to excuse yourself from stepping into that situation? So here is a single mother. And she is in need. She doesn't have enough money to put buy groceries to put food in the mouths of her children this month. Who's going to help her? Well, there you are. You become aware of the need through someone else or through the person. And now what do you do? What we want to do as Christians is guard ourselves against the excuses that inevitably arise because of our flesh. The first things we think are, well, surely there's uh, some government program that can help her. She should definitely get involved in that. Or, you know, she hasn't told me, so maybe it would embarrass her if I brought it up, so I'm not going to bring it up. Or, I don't have as much of the world's goods as so-and-so over there. So-and-so ought to be using the world's goods that he has to help her. And John says, don't do that. God's love's in your heart. You see the need. Those excuses are closing, closing, closing your heart against this person. Here is this person knocking upon the door, saying, please, I have a need. It can be financial, but it can also be anything, emotional, your help, your involvement, come alongside the grieving. They're knocking upon the door. Are you closing the door? Then you ought to hear what Augustine, the church father, said. He said, God will treat his beggar the way you treat yours. Brothers and sisters, beware lest there be found in any of us a heart prone to closing. What we really want rather is a heart that is thrown completely open to the needs of the entire world, but first of course, of course to those who are closest to us right here. Why is it that our hearts aren't always completely open? It can be that we love the things we have and we love our comforts. Well, put that to death by the Spirit. You have to get over that. You gave that up when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and come follow me. You said yes to that? Okay, you've got to get rid of all of that. So you are following Jesus and giving up another reason that at times we try to close our door from the needs of those who are around us is because people take advantage of you. Has that ever happened? People take advantage of you. You give sacrificially and they do squander it. Or they're unappreciative. Or they come back to you time and time again because you're the one who gives. Or they use it on something that they shouldn't. And you say, never again. I'm not going to be generous like this because people take advantage. Well, if there's a clear case, okay, then work with that person. Don't waste your resources. But you cannot close the door of your heart. Close it. Lock it. Latch. 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 Everybody stay out there. I'm not getting taken advantage of ever again. Or somebody hurts you. You open your heart in love to a small group. 
and then someone in the small group says something very hurtful. And you may confront them and it becomes an issue. Okay. And you say, okay, close that door, lock it, latch, latch, latch. I'm going to go chill on the couch. I'm tired of getting involved in people's lives. They just hurt you. They betray you. And John says, are you a Christian? Do you have God's love in you and you've got your door locked and you're laying on the couch eating Cheetos, watching a show, and you've got God's, God's love? We're saying God's love? That's in you? Okay, you need to get off the couch. You need to start unlatching. You need to unlock that. You need to open that door. If it has to just be cracked at first, let's start there. Just crack it at first, okay? But the door has to be open. You know that if you open that door and love others like John is calling you to do indeed, like really with your life, you would think everyone would praise that, but it's not always the case. You may be like the West Kenyan man. He was a very wealthy businessman, true story, and then gave that up to bring in orphans off the streets of Nairobi into his house. He begins bringing in dozens of these orphans. And what's the consequence as he cares for them and gives them a family? His church kicked him out. Friends came to his wife and told her, you should divorce him. He's lost his mind. If you open the door of your heart, don't hear me saying, your life will be really easy and nice and pleasant. Green pastures, really great. No, that's why people close the door, because it's not like that. But if God's love is in you, you will open that door. God's love is so massive, so expansive, it can't stay in so cramped a room. Either you got to get God's love out of there, or you better open a door. And John's call to you is to open the door. I'm afraid that sometimes we don't open the door to meet the needs of others as well because we're afraid we'll do it wrong. And people will see that. Here's someone grieving. They've lost a loved one. And you don't want to be the one who ends up in a pastor's anecdote about how not to comfort someone when they've lost someone because you come and don't know what to say and you say something foolish and then you say, never again, close the door, lock, latch, latch, latch to the couch. Sometimes it's our fear of others perceiving us as not good at meeting the needs of others. And we say, well, they can't see us that way if we just don't do it. <laughs> Listen, you'll be criticized no matter what you do in life. Whether you do something or you don't do something, doesn't matter. Someone has an opinion against what you did or did not do. I think instead we should take the attitude of D.L. Moody, who in the matter of evangelism, when he was criticized by how he shared the gospel, he responded to the men, well, I like the way I share the gospel better than the way you don't. <laughs> and that ought to be very much our attitude at Faith Bible Church. I hope you feel a freedom to risk in meeting needs of other people and sometimes to do it wrong. It's okay. Sometimes you have to meet the needs of others and others will think you're doing it wrong and they'll be happy to tell you. Don't close the door. Listen to the counsel. If there's truth in it, change. If not, press on and meet the needs of others. But whatever you do, you must not close your heart. May God give us hearts that are blown wide open, even if it's to be, perhaps it's an extreme like the reformer Martin Luther, who in one of his letters to a friend wrote and said, we're so glad you got married and I have a wedding present for you. It is a vase and I will give it to you as soon as my wife tells me where she hid it. <laughs> Because he was giving away too much of their things. But certainly, that should be the attitude that we feel. 
Nothing we have is our own. Our doors are open and we meet the needs of those when we see them and we're seeing them. So verse 17 here, and really there at the beginning of 18, he's talking about what not to be. Don't close the door. Look here in verse 18 how he says it. Little children, let us not love in word or talk. If you as a Christian here close the door of your heart toward others, how does that become loving in word or talk? Well, because you're a Christian and you know you have to at least say that you love people. But if you've closed the door of your heart, you don't. So now what are you going to do? Everybody thinks you love people because here you are at church. Well, then you're going to at least say that you love people. You know, you feel the pressure. You have to say it. That's the Christian thing to say. But if the door of your heart is closed and you don't really love people, whoop, now we've got hypocrisy. And that's what he's talking about here. He says, don't let your love be just words, just talk. That's not followed up because you don't mean it. Mean it. It's like James said, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, here's the words, go in peace, be warmed and filled. See the words? And they're gone. They did nothing. He says, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? <laughs> you come Sunday morning, love you, brother. Listen. Good, say that. If it's not followed up with anything, any deed, James says, what good is that? Words are cheap. John is asking the same of you. Let us not love with just words, superficially painted over. No, not here. Maybe some other church, not here. The word restrains us. We cannot love that way. But that brings us, of course, to the question of how we do love. And that is where we come now in this text. We don't love in word, word love, but we do love in deed. Look at this in verse 18, the second part. Little children, let's not love in word or talk, but let's love in deed and in truth. Now, by an accident of the development of the English language, when I say indeed, you're probably thinking, I mean indeed with no space in between. <laughs> this has a space in between, but it actually works out very well because what we mean by the word indeed, one word, is indeed and in truth. Means really. That's all that John's saying there. Let's not love just by saying. Let's really love each other. So, love indeed. In the truest sense. Do you love indeed? Really? And that is the impetus as we move to really the most. Am I allowed to say this? I don't want to discriminate amongst verses of the Bible, but this is a beautiful verse in the Bible. When we come to verse 16, you want to know love indeed? Here it is. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. He didn't say, I love you, and then go to a comfortable life. This is his deed. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
the reason that we do and will continue to excel in loving each other indeed. And by the way, I don't say this because you don't do it. How many times have I been told by people in and outside of this church that the people here love each other? I've been told many, many times. And they mean indeed, not just what you say. But how is it that that's what characterizes us because loving's hard? It's because we know what love is in a way no one else does. Because this is love, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go outside the doors of this church into the world, there will be those who think that they know love. By this we know love. By what? By the semi-pornographic romantic movies that they're watching? No, those are two selfish people on the screen getting what they can from each other and then discarding each other when the getting's no longer good. But that happens after the credits roll, but that's reality. That is as mostly a selfishness portrayed. It's the very opposite of love. We don't know love by that. Don't get your cues from those movies, no. By this we know love. Someone else might point to, outside of the church, point to a maternal love, the love a mother has for a child. Well, that is a very real, true reflection of the ultimate love. But if you're a mother, you know. You're doing a great job, probably. I mean, it's hard to be a mother. But you know that your love for your children is not perfect. It has lapses. There are times where you are impatient. There are times when you would die for this child. And there are times where, well, I won't say, but you wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you know? So do we want to make that the standard by which we know love? No. By this we know love. This is what defines love for us now and forever. It is the cross of Jesus Christ in our text that he laid down his life for us. The man who hangs upon the cross is the one who said in his life, greater love has no one than this. Here's the greatest love. Here's the very definition of love. That a man should lay down his life for his friend. And that's exactly what Jesus on the cross did. But not even just for his friend. For a good man, someone might perhaps die, says Paul. But for an unrighteous man, Jesus laid down his life for his enemy. So Jesus, greatest love for your friends. Well, here's the greater than the greatest love. It is Jesus on the cross laying down his life for the sins of his enemies. That he could take them upon himself that those who believe would no longer be his enemies. That's what defines love for us. That's why we love to open wide the door and take in the nails and the cruel pain of loving each other because it hurts sometimes. You know what? A cross hurts. And that's what defines love for us. When we look at almost every word and phrase in this definition of love, he laid down his life for us. All of it compels us to live lives of giving. Just think of each word. Think of he. <laughs> who are we talking about here? Who's the one who lays his life down? We're not talking about a peasant or a pauper. We're talking about the God-man. We are talking about God himself, possessor of all things, creator of heaven and earth. Jesus forever enthroned, receiving seraphic worship. And he, in the Greek, literally, it's that one. He's pointing. Look. 
Behold, the God-man who takes away the sin of the world. He dies upon the cross. It's he who's crying out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Yes, certainly, they don't know that they undermine the existence of life by killing the source of all things. He, he is the one who lays down his life. That's love. You have the world's goods. This person doesn't. Christ had all the world's goods. And he became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. You imitate he, that one. That's our definition of love. And look what he did. He laid down his life. That's easy to say. Laid down his life. It cost me nothing to say it because remember, words are cheap. But he didn't say it. He did it. The iron through wrists, through ankles, the bleeding, the suffering, the agony, but above all of that, the darkness that represented his being abandoned by the Father. What we sing, the Father turns his face away. I don't know what this means, but it's what happened upon the cross. And Jesus sweat drops of blood in preparation for this great agony, the cup of the Father's wrath that he drank. That's what it means when we say, lay down his life. And look, four? It's worth stopping sometime, maybe this week in your prayers, and say, what does four mean when I say Jesus died for me? Have you ever thought of that? Four certainly means he died for us as our substitute, but I think what John has here mainly in mind is Jesus died for our benefit. He suffered so we don't have to. It's for our benefit. And even that word, us, you know us. You know us. So that's the most shocking word of all. That he would lay down his life in suffering for the benefit of us. Fairly non-impressive, still wrestling with sin habits, us. That is the definition of love that we have and it's what compels us. When we were without God in the world, we wandered about like beggars, not knowing what to do with our lives, in great need and trying to get that anywhere we could, settling for crumbs. And we come knocking on a door and it opens and there is really the king of the land. There is Jesus himself. And as the door opens, a breeze brings the whiff of our depravity into his nostrils. We're foul outside of Christ. He's holy and pure and pristine and upright. And that comes to his face. It would be easy to just shut the door. But this is how we know love. He didn't do it. The door stayed open. The Prince of Peace throws open the doors. He looks at us just like he looked at that rich young ruler who rejected him. And it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And the prince looks at the pauper on his doorway and loves him. His door is open. His heart is open. I suppose if we were to extend the metaphor, it'd be like Jesus really took the screwdriver and just removed the hinges off his door. Throw those doors away. That's what the cross was. It was his open invitation, his welcome to a world of beggars, foul, covered in the slime of sin, and he welcomes them all to come and be washed. Come and be welcomed. You need a family? Come and find a family. That's love. Not the rom-coms. That's love. 
Jesus doing that. It's Christ walking along the streets of Nairobi at night and finding that cold, shivering, orphan girl of the age of six who's hiding under some shanty and saying, do you want a family? You want to come into a warm home? And of course she does. But she's got nothing to offer. She's got no money. She's got no parents. She has no social connection. She's got nothing. What can she give to this man asking her that? He says, you don't have to give anything. And he sweeps her up in his arms and he walks her to his home and he brings her in, bathes her, clothes her. She sits at his table that night <laughs> trying to figure out how to use a fork to eat a meal. That's love. You see that little girl shivering there under the shanty? That's you. That's you. You have nothing to offer God. And here comes Christ with everything in the world and sees you and welcomes you in. Well, I shouldn't say that is you. That was you. And now you are part of the family of God. And now you who had no future prospects have an eternal paradise awaiting you. You who had no parent, no ultimate guardian in the universe who were thrown out at sea. Now you have God as your father caring for you. He's thinking about that thing you're worried about that's coming up this week. He was thinking about it before you were thinking about it. He's going to take care of you, walk with you by the hand through that trial, see you through it. You have someone caring for you and it's God. It's Christ himself, the God man. And now that you're in that position... There's a knock at your door, and you open it up. Oh, and it does not smell good. And there's the beggar. There's the brother or sister in need, or the lost person, and they're in need. And now you have to decide what you're going to do. You have the option of closing the door, locking the latches, sitting on the couch. But do you see how incongruous that is? Do you see how weird that would be for someone like you, welcomed in off the streets, given everything? Wouldn't that be weird for you to lock the door now on the fellow beggar? <laughs> no. Open the door. Welcome them in. You might be someone who, and we do this even as Christians at times, we've been called to not save our life. And if anyone tries to save his life, Jesus says, you will lose it. But even once your eternal life is secured, there's still a way we try to save our life. I think that C.S. Lewis put it well when he spoke of opening the door toward the beggars who come to our door. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Are you willing to do that? Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Don't close the door to preserve your life. But in keeping with Jesus, open it up. This week, open it up. 
Go see your brothers and sisters. And when you hear of troubles, don't try to get to the other group talking over here because you don't want to get involved. Get involved right away. Take the initiative. Ask the question. Throw yourself into the problem. Take the bull by the horns. Put yourself into that position. One another. And when you do that, though it seems scary, though it seems painful, you'll look down on your leg and say, what is this? The pollen of joy. Because you will be living a flourishing, Christ-like, loving Christian life. Let's pray. Christ, even, even in these words that we speak right now, we recognize these are words. And I hope and believe I can speak on behalf of us all and say... We have loved your people. We have given them a cup of cold water. We have clothed them and visited them in prison. But we want to do so much more. But the want is still only a want right now. These words are still only words right now. And the days that follow will prove whether our love is in word or in deed. But since your love is in us, expanding, pressing against our inner boundaries of comfort, and since we have always before our eyes Christ and Him crucified, you, in the greatest display of love, the very definition of it, it's hard for me to imagine that we can succeed in latching and locking our doors for long. Compel us, Lord, press us to open them wider, to go and call in those in the hedges and the highways and to welcome them in. I pray you'd make us the sort of people who have renounced any sort of a safe life, who have long ago given that all away. Make us the sort of people who welcome risk, who treasure the pain of love, who run to and not from the hottest part of the battle, who hear of a need and throw ourselves, our souls and all our resources into it. Help us not to be those who carefully count and plan and analyze, who carefully avoid all that is risky. Teach us instead to die upon a cross for the good of others. In Christ's name we pray it.